Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, we continue embracing zero trust with zero trust architecture with returning guests, Steve Oren and Dave Marcus. Dave, Steve, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Darren. Great to be here. Thanks, Darren. Hey, um, Steve, this is number eight for you on the show, eight or nine, somewhere in that range. Uh, my most prolific uh, guest. And Dave, <laughs> this is number two for you. But I think Dave's going to catch up to Steve a lot, especially during this uh, zero trust, embracing zero trust uh, series that we've kicked off. Um, today, we want to talk about architecture um, in conjunction with what we talked about as zero trust principles. We need a foundational architecture. Me being a solution architect, everything I need to boil everything into a slide, right? Now, one picture that I can see that's going to change my world. I'm going to be completely zero trust. Um, and no one's going to be able to attack me after I do that, right? Is that what we're aiming for today? It's an idea. It's an idea. Thanks, Steve. Well, let's dive in first. I'd like to talk about what is zero trust architecture, because that's the buzzword du jour, ZTA. What is zero trust architecture in its simplest form? Let's talk about that first. So I'll start off and then, Dave, you can talk a little bit about some of the origins of this. Um, at, it, at its core, if you just break it down to the most elemental parts of it, zero trust is about a given asset, resource or service applying a policy to it at the moment or at the time of interaction. And there's a lot of terms that get used like policy enforcement point, policy administrator, policy, administrator, policy uh, uh, admin engines, and all the other things. But at its core, and what you start thinking about the tenets of, of, of default deny and continuous authentication and continuous authorization, what you're really doing is you're providing a real-time policy for the asset or the resource as it's being actor, interacted with, while it's being interacted, no matter where it is. So when you start thinking about it from that perspective, it's a data or a capability or a transactional system that as something or someone is interacting with it or transacting with it, you're applying a policy and enforcing that policy without uh, it being bound to a particular system or network. It's wherever that resource is at that time, whatever the transaction is at that time, and whatever the user is authenticated to be able to do at that time and can change. And there's the real key of what makes Zero Trust different from the defense in depth and the other kinds of approaches is this dynamic and it's continuous. So think about those two tenets of Zero Trust, dynamic, continuous. Dynamic meaning it can change. Continuous means you're constantly updating. And then you follow the, the resource or the, or the service or the asset and you continually no, I, apply I, I that policy. Back, I, I, I want to ask you the, the question and then we'll uh, ask Dave about the history around this. When you say resource, you're not meaning just device. You're meaning it could be a database. It could be an individual bit of data. It could be an application. It could be anything that you're using in your in your ecosystem to get business value out of, right? Absolutely. It could be something as complex as an ERP system or as straightforward as a camera on, on, a, on a system, a remote, a remote camera. It could be a data repository. It could be a transaction flow. The resource or the asset, and that's why they use these terms somewhat interchangeably when they're talking about architecture, it's whatever the thing you're trying to do. 
And that could be a flow, by the way. It could be a process as the asset or resource. Could be a service like VPN, like streaming video. It could be any of the combination of those. But it's again, it's separating it away from I'm trying to access a system, like I'm trying to log into Linux or I'm trying to log into right, a website. Yeah. It's really about what you're trying to do. And at the core, being able to apply a policy to what you're trying to do, as opposed to it's a physical system that sits someplace. That's part of the conversation behind the scenes. But zero trust is about understanding the, the asset you're actually trying to interact with. You're logging into that web server to do something. And that's the key, to do something. That's where zero trust really shines is it's a policy based on what's trying to be accomplished and it, about the assets and resources that make that happen. And that allows you to divorce it from the physical systems or the other dependencies and be able to apply policy that can live with the transaction, can move with the transaction. With the transaction. Okay, I love it. All right, Dave, where did this all come from? You're our historian. You're our practical guy. Steve and I, we're like slide uh, slide architects, slide detects. Oh, come on. That, that, we're more than that, Darren. Yeah, all right. Just a little bit more. But Dave is brass tacks. That should be on a bumper sticker, slide attacks. That's a great one, Darren. So if you look at some of the original documentation that Forrester put forth back in the day, right, Kinderberg and such, they define four types of resources, data resource, asset resource, application resource, service resource. Those are the four things that you're gonna say, I do not trust anything that wants to access those four resources. That's where you put the policy that Steve is talking about of how they access those, re those four types of resources. So that's really what it comes down to is those four types of resources and then I'm not going to trust anything. I'm gonna make them prove that that type of policy that we were talking about, that that uh, Kipling policy, who, what, when, where, why, and how, that policy enforcement point in front of those four types of resources continually applied is really the basis of zero trust. And the zero trust portion is spot on there. doesn't matter the type of resource that I'm trying to quote unquote protect. I do not trust anything that's trying to interact with it. So they need to prove to me through policy enforcement and compliance that they should be. They are who they are. They're coming from the right place. They're devices of the right health and they're of the right security posture. That's really the basic tenet of zero trust. All right. So when I hear you guys talk about this, it seems like to me that this is a lot of work because I'm putting policy around every single asset that I have, every single resource that I have, right? Service, application, data. Um, this is, this is not non-trivial. I can't just go buy something off the shelf and, and be done. Yeah, Darren, that's correct. That's what I'm hearing from you guys. Yeah, that's very correct. There, there is no product there's that can product. solve zero trust. And again, thinking about it that way is actually the wrong approach. Zero trust architecture isn't an end state. It's a, it, and a lot of people talk about it's, it's, the, it's a journey. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Zero trust architecture, I think it should have been titled zero trust approach. Because that's really what it, it's not that I'm going to go build a thing and it's going to sit and do its job and I'm done. I can go off and work on something else. Zero trust is how you apply the things you do in the environment. And so it's a methodology. It's a philosophy in some respects. And it's a means to do things. And so when you start looking at, well, how am I going to secure my assets? How am I going to take care of my web serving? How am I going to support this line of business? You're going to, it's about doing it in a zero trust way and applying those zero trust policies and continually approve, improving and expanding. So 
the, before we get to how you start, understand that there's, it's not a, it, you know, think of it as a, a massively, you know, online player uh, game. There's no end. It's constantly going, you're constantly, the world is constantly expanding. However, you make, you, you achieve key goals and milestones along the way. That's really what we're talking about with Zero Trust is that it's a means to allow you to start enhancing your security posture. And why is this important? Because it's one of the key mechanisms that we're seeing that will allow us to get parity with, with, with the adversaries. And so instead of being in the constant firefighting mode that we've always been and trying to keep up with patches and keep up with Zero Days, Zero Trust is a way to start to get a handle on that and get ahead. But it's not a end goal that I'm done and I can move on and I can figure out something else to do or I can close up shop because all my security's done. It's a, it's a journey and it's where you are on that journey. Okay, so, so I mean, there, and, and we'll talk about this in another episode, the ZTA maturity model, right? We've taught, um, that most definitely will be a fascinating episode. But let's talk about practical things. Let's talk about where, where do I start? So I'm, I'm going over to the practitioner. Sorry, Steve. I'm going yeah. to talk to Dave. Because where, where do I start? I, I've got this rough idea of an architecture, right? Resources, policy enforcement uh, point, uh, policy administrator. I've got some key architectural elements. I'm, I'm brand new to this. What do I do first? What, what's the first thing that I do, Dave? So the first thing Dave says to do is map a workflow. Take one workflow that you're looking to apply zero trust principles to and map that workflow. What does that mean? That's going to give you the architecture that that workflow is built on. So let's say you're a financial institution. Take one of those transactions and map its workflow. Map that business workflow. How does the user get to that particular part of the workflow that they want. And let's just say it's a front end of a database transaction. Let's just say I want to go, I want to log into my website and I want to pay a bill. Or right, let's, let's, let's be practical. Account. Let's pay you a map, bill. You map that. Yep. You map that, that workflow. You map that exact workflow down. That's exactly right. Be that tangible and say from the client to the back end database transaction, what is that whole workflow? that I need to apply zero trust to. That's where the customer starts. That's where the enterprise starts. That's where the government organization starts. Start by mapping the workflow. Okay, so let's let let's let's map a workflow real quick, right? Um, purchase order workflow. I online, mm -hmm. online, I'm gonna buy something online, right? Mm -hmm. We're gonna talk about um, the e-commerce uh, customer, whatever it may be. If, if that's the case, right, I map the flow, right? I, the person logs into my website it, and they uh, create a cart and then they purchase the stuff in the cart and then the stuff gets shipped to me. Simple, high level. Now I go underneath the covers and I'm going to hit a web server. I'm going to hit a, uh, a backend database. That's the detail you want, right? Backend database, maybe some business logic level in there. I'm going to hit each one of those levels in my architecture. Is that what you're saying I need to do? That is, that is absolutely correct. So if you think about it from the client perspective, I'm the person logging yeah. in to actually okay. do the work order. So 
the only thing that client system should be interacting with is that web page, right? That's all that that user should be allowed to actually interact with. So the policy enforcement point is only allowing that particular remote client, wherever they are, doesn't matter if they're local, doesn't matter if they're remote, doesn't matter if they're cloud-based, whatever, to only interact with enough resources on the web server that allows them to do that transaction. Everything else that you're applying to the zero trust architecture is limiting that client to doing that specific thing at that specific time. Now, the other stuff that you just talked about there, the database and everything else, that's the enterprise's side of deploying the zero trust architecture from the enterprise side. So you, you notice that I'm, I'm breaking yeah, that out into yeah. two distinct points. You've got, you've got how the client customer is accessing, and it could be a B2P, it could be a business to business partner that's doing the same thing, but it's the client access, and then there's the back end servicing of that request. That's, this part of it has zero trust principles applied to it. The back end portion of it has zero trust architecture applied to it. Makes yeah. sense? But that's the workflow you want to map out. And then every step along the way, all right, the client needs to have these things on it. The policy enforcement point needs to have these things on it. The web server needs to have these things on it. The database needs to have these things on it. And then you apply your principles yeah. in that particular Yeah, yeah it does. Uh, so this brings up an interesting question. And maybe this one's for Steve on, on top of this. Does this then require to, to, to really have zero trust in, in my architecture? Does it require me to rewrite my code? So you ask a good question there. And I think um, it's important to understand that there's, you know, when you look at that architecture, especially on the enterprise side, and I'll hit on one of the things Dave was talking about, the services that enable that workflow. We talked about a very simple one, but even in that simple web transaction we we're talking about, there are multiple dependencies. Think about it this way. You said in the very beginning, I log into a web server. Well, that means there's more than web server involved. There's some sort of authentication system. There's going to be an authorization system. There's going to be database lookups before I even get to the cart to make sure I'm, I'm a valid customer or my preferred customer. A whole CRM process that may occur. Then you've got you know, the search of the assets, the search of the credit card payment systems, the search of the availability system. All of that comes together into that front end, if you will. But the behind the scenes, there's a complex flow. So going to your point about do I need to rewrite my systems, the answer is depends. For the most part, the idea of understanding your workflow is to understand what the brittle parts are. So as you start thinking about zero trust, no one is thinking that they're going to throw out everything and start over. That's never going to happen, and that's not no, what we're saying. Happen, right? Exactly. Yeah, it can. But understanding those key dependencies and the flows and interactions between them is going to highlight the things you may need to do differently in order to enable the zero trust policy and the zero trust enforcement. You're still gonna have an authentication uh, a request event with this authentication system. You're still gonna have the database lookups. All of that's still gonna happen and happen as they did before. What you may be doing though behind the scenes is doing better network segmentation with entry and out, uh, exit, exfil, you know, um, in and out uh, policy controls. You may be putting things in between things to check things to enforce policy. You may be changing the flow behind the scenes to add additional steps, checks, or to be able to come in and revalidate that this client interaction is still the one I'm transacting with when I'm doing the downstream workflows. So there may be some things you put into the systems or the way you architect or re-architect that environment, but at its core, this is why that what Dave said is so important. The goal isn't zero trust. Remember that. The goal, is the goal is to enable that client to buy the thing they want to buy. That's always got to be the goal. 
the workflow okay, drives. Wait, a security guy actually said this out loud. We, can we write this no, no. down? Because this is a historical right. moment, right? And, and I agree no, with no, you, no, Steve. No. I really like this approach because, yeah, um, Dave, it. because it's a systems approach. I yeah, can't, correct. if I just put zero trust on one element in my whole workflow, who cares? Because I'm still vulnerable across the whole workflow. Right. So That's if I correct. take this systems yep. approach, then I have to then weigh the risk and cost of getting all the way down to the small detail where maybe, like you said, Steve, if I just put micro segmentation in, then maybe that's good enough um, for my risk profile that I have. That might be good enough. Darren, I want to, I want to add one important thing. And this is why that initial workflow is so important. Because like I said in the beginning, it's a journey. But here's one of the things. When you start with a, a defined workflow, and the key thing is understanding those key dependencies, here's what you're going to learn after you've done that, that exercise. And you've started to implement zero trust for those dependent services that enable that transaction. Is you're going to find that the next workflow you've done, you go after. So when you, you did, now you're going to just say tracking of orders. Guess what? Yeah. You're still doing a lot of the yep. same things. So if I apply zero trust policies and enforcements to say the, the, so those key dependent components, I'm going to find the next transaction may have as much as 80% overlap. Probably not, maybe 60. But that means I'm 60% already done So when I look at the next set of dependencies. And what you'll find, and this is sort of the force multiplier of starting with one key workflow within the organization and building on top of it is that you the reuse if i apply that correctly to one i can then leverage that for my next one because i've already done the authentication so i've already figured that one out now i can still focus on the next piece of the puzzle the other thing is so, while you're doing all of that and you're driving to the bigger uh, the more and more transactions is you've got the first one already operating and you can see what's working what's not and do process improvements and technology improvements for those foundational uh, services and that then, as you build up that capability, those enhancements flow back to everything you do in the future. So while you're moving forward on your journey, and but you're also enhancing what you've started with by being proactive of identifying efficiencies and, and scale issues, you're making everything you're doing downstream better as you build out those foundational uh, capabilities. So, so what this tells me, what I'm hearing is, I can't just have a security expert do my ZTA. You need a systems architect as well, someone that can see the broad picture of everything in a security context. Bigger, bigger, Darren. And Think bigger. I'm going to ask Dave this. Before you get to Dave, you're, you're, you're thinking too small. If you're going to be successful in zero trust, it's an all of company effort. You need the line of business involved. You need to have your, yeah, it, you, you've got to be, you can't be thinking, this is not a CISO job. This is an enterprise level right. job. Systems architects, absolutely. You have to understand the value of the business. You have to have to understand the value and the and the interactions but, but there's for the process change involved. Exactly, there's cultural change, all those sorts of things. Absolutely, well. this is a whole yeah, of company initiative, not a oh, just go implement that new technology widget initiative. Got it. All right. That's actually so Dave. That's a key point. Is that's a key point actually? Is is it has to be driven from the executive down, right? It has to have executive buy-in because the culture is going to shift radically when you do this. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, you wait until you're turning it on to let everybody know you're transitioning to zero trust. The whole portion, the whole point that you do it from, from the top down approach and the bottom up approach 
is to get buy-in at the same time that you're actually trying to do it. Look, look, team, there's a reason we're moving. Here's what the benefits are going to be. Here's what the road bumps are going to be. But here is how resilient we will be. And here's how much better the customer experience will be right from the beginning. And things like that give them buy-in, right? You know, it's, it's not just, hey, we're implementing new security features and you can't log in except for this time. It's not, that's not the way you get buy-in, right? Um, you get the buy-in for zero trust because it enables the business to operate better in, in, in just about every tangible way. Um, you eliminate a lot of stuff. You end up with a better architecture, period. If you do your zero trust um, workload methods, you end up actually, some people wind up with an architecture for the first right. time. Some people, you know, a lot of enterprises out there don't actually know how many assets they have. What is their inventory? How many services do they have? Things like that. But if you do, if you truly embrace the workflow mapping aspect of zero trust, you actually come away with architectural documents of your enterprise and your business flows and everything anyway. And that's a good day, you know, so properly with that buy-in, think about that. You know, when you get that kind of buy-in across the enterprise, people are just like, oh, I'm in, sign us up. All right. You so, know, it's a better So I, I love it because it, it seems to me like this is, a, this is a big deal. This is not like I'm going to throw pizza and Coke at a couple technical guys in, in a locked-up conference room and say, fix our ZTA. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Right? So it includes nope. business people, line of business. So I need process yeah. engineers. I need... Uh, uh, security engineers. I need systems architects. I need um, the buy-in. I need cultural change agents. I need training. All it, so this is this is non-trivial. So why would I do well, it? And if you if you think about exactly what you just said right there, is zero trust as an approach, like Steve talked about, embraces almost every aspect of the enterprise and the business. You need to engage every aspect of the enterprise and the business to actually do it right. And, and if you think about the fact that zero trust is an approach that can be applied to existing products and existing architectures and existing widgets, um, everything in your network environment is going to potentially be impacted in some way, in a lot of positive ways. So you need to engage as much of your corporate assets and your company people as possible, um, because a lot of what you have existing in your network and your architecture today can be deployed through a zero trust approach. It's not just going out and buying new widgets and turning things okay, on. Okay, that's and stuff interesting. Like that. when, you take, when you take that workflow into account, again, when you go back to mapping the workflow, you're going to see, oh, wait a minute, I have these 12 things that could be a plot that could be redeployed in a zero trust way. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of stuff on the router side, the switch side, the network side, even existing policies and potential identity solutions can be more configured to work in a zero trust approach way. So it's not just go out and buy new widgets, Darren. It's when you map those workflows, you're going to see, I've got 40% of my zero trust solution. I just didn't know about it. So a lot of existing work can be done there. All right. So this is a big endeavor. I need executive buy-off. Um, mm -hmm. I've got, I've got a, a rough um, slide detector, right? Um, that well, because those are I, I need those. I need those to help guide me, like you're saying. What, what I'm still that this is this is non non trivial. So how do I how do I even where do I go to find out more information? How do I train up? How do I know if I'm a CIO or a CEO? How do I start? Do I just go hire a ZTA expert? Do I or how do I do that? there's a lot of questions because you guys give me some great ideas, but 
uh, deer in the headlights here, guys. I need some help. I think there's a couple ways to come about, come at that question, Darren. So number one, and there's a reason why we're seeing zero trust in all the vernacular, why you have an executive order from the White House in requiring yeah, both yeah. A, a strategy and an implementation and a deadline to get started because it is a massive undertaking and it requires executive, just like we see in the, in the federal government, we need it, you're gonna need that in every organization, a top-down approach to drive this engine forward and the proper funding to get there. But you ask a key question is, how do you begin? Again, you don't just go buy a bunch of zero trust products. There, there isn't like I can go hire the zero trust consulting group, although everyone's gonna say they are a zero trust consulting well, group. Well, yeah, I, I, I can name, a, I can give you a list of them yeah. right now, right? I think the key is, sort of, is, from my perspective, is three things. And one of them is what Dave already mentioned, but I'll mention one of the first ones, is educate yourself, whether you're a CISO, a CIO, or a business executive, there is some good material out there. NIST has a great document. Yeah, there There's a bunch of others. Understand what it, you know, get the get the basics, the vernacular, so you know what you're talking about. And that's really just reading a couple of white papers, reading the NIST 800-207 uh, document to get up to speed on what, and that's, by the way, NIST SP 800-207, which is the Zero Trust Architectural Approach uh, document from NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, will help give you a, a foundation. So that's one part, learn. Not train your entire staff yet. That's just so you know what you're trying to do. Step two is exactly what Dave said. Understand the first workflow. And I'll give you a little bit of color to that. Don't take the most critical business application or transaction and start there. But also, Correct. don't take the most meaningless one either. You mean the birthday app? Yeah. Don't take the birthday app. Do something in the medium range. Something that if you succeed, it shows value. But if you fail initially, it doesn't take to create your business. So somewhere in that medium risk area and apply the workflow analysis and dependency and asset management and asset inventory to that. And then the third area is really, there are some key things you can do before you get to the downstream you know, total maturity. There's some good best practices with your existing technology and existing products and services you're already using to help set you up for success for Zero Trust. I'll name a couple of them. Number one, you've mentioned earlier, Darren, micro-segmentation, network segmentation, and isolation. The reason for that is, is number one, the smaller the domain that you have to apply that policy to, the more specific you can make that policy. And so if I can yep. create little micro-segments for all the different assets and services that you identified in that workflow analysis, I can start to put a wrap around them and apply a policy to the most, you know, the, the, the context-aware policy. And that's important because you, want, you don't want a macro policy that you haven't achieved anything. Guess what? Right. Your existing network infrastructure can do this today. You don't have to go buy a new router or switch. You already have that capability. You just have to turn it on or leverage it. That's one. Two, okay. make okay. sure you've got that adequate asset inventory. So for all those dependencies, understand where those systems are, how they work, what interfaces they have so that you can start to make changes when needed. And that's really having a strong asset inventory, both the software, the systems, the networks, the whole stack. Three. So that includes data too. Data. Right? I mean, yeah, the whole nine yards. The whole thing. Number, okay. number three, start from a foundation of trust. That means understand the building blocks. And this is one of the key things people forget. Infrastructure does matter. Even though we're talking about applying policies to assets as they transverse networks, as they transverse systems, security starts in the physical world and then go, moves up. 
you have to know where your data is and where it's what security you have for that data in the place it is at that time. So that means being able to measure and secure boot the systems, being able to encrypt and validate the network controls, being able to do attestation in the cloud. All of those foundational things are sort of, are, are sort of the, the, the table stakes for moving beyond. You have to build on a solid foundation so that when you start applying controls up the stack, you know that your base is secure. Yeah, otherwise someone can attack the, the, the foundation and they have- And all the policy that. goes away, exactly. All the, the policy goes the away. Fourth, okay, I like that. The fourth tenant, and these are not necessarily in order, they're just sort of as they come in the stream of comments. The fourth tenant is protect the data throughout all stages of its life cycle, at rest, in transit, and in use. Encrypt your data. The policy will dictate who gets access to the data, who can decrypt it, but you have to start with encrypting your data everywhere all the time. All right, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask you a question on this. It's a loaded question. Here's a softball. So encryption costs, resources, and time. So Darren, that so is that is 2000s, 1990s thinking. Because yes, there is a cost to encryption. However, in the modern era, modern hardware has built in crypto acceleration that takes the pain away from encrypting your data. That's the, that's the key. And this has been around and available for years. The reason why you can encrypt all of the traffic coming from a client system to the cloud, why you can do full disk encryption today without impacting performance and do full gaming on that client when it's fully encrypted is because the hardware is automatically and behind the scenes accelerating the encryption. So that okay. idea, and this is again, it's legacy thinking that, oh, encryption is painful. Encryption is gonna drop my performance. That's an, it's not the case anymore. The hardware manufacturers, the OEMs, the software vendors, and the cloud providers have worked together for 10, 15 years to enable the entire ecosystem to take native advantage of hardware acceleration in crypto, whether by- Okay, so no excuses. No excuses, no excuses. No excuses, all right. And then the last piece of the puzzle I wanna, I wanna highlight as our foundational, and there's some additional things you could do, but I think one of the other things, and it's, it's a word, visibility. Could be transparency, but visibility is the key. You can't secure what you don't know. And it's more than just that asset inventory that's important, but from a, a security operations perspective, from a business operations perspective, from a customer operations and relationship management perspective, you need to have visibility. You need to instrument your workflow, instrument your data sources, and be able to get the dashboard, get the data so you can see what's working, what's not, what's breaking. You gotta be able to see, is my security operating at, at efficiency? Is there a, a bottleneck in some of the security controls? Have there been some things that have not gone the right way that I apply my policy on? How do I verify? This is where the continuous verification comes into play. You have to have that visibility. If you don't have visibility, you're not gonna be able to achieve your goals because you won't know if you're secure. You won't know what you don't know. Exactly. Yeah. And so visibility is a key tenant of underpinning of all of this. And where this visibility actually gets interesting as the, let's call it the sixth pillar of where to begin, is everyone looks at visibility in my operational environment. We all, of course, and that's important and we have to get that right. But we also start to need to get visibility into where things are coming from. And this is where supply chain risk management becomes an important part of the oh, overall story. From the hardware all the way up to the software. We've seen a lot of talk about supply chain attacks in the open source community and commercial oh, products. Yeah, and there's yeah, been ones industry. in the last yeah. couple of weeks, like the, every couple of weeks we hear of a new supply chain attack. The way you're not going to solve, you're not going to fix every supply chain attack because the hackers are still in business. 
But if you have visibility into where your stuff is coming from and what it's made up of, when you find out that a new CodeCov or a Log4j has happened, you can react in near real time as opposed to waiting for a patch 10 months later. You can react to, to apply stronger policies to those products that may be affected knowing is, you know, again, this is the old 80s cartoon, knowing is half the battle. Knowing your supply chain and being able to create risk policies based on the current state of my supply, not what did I buy 10 months ago, 10 years ago, but at this moment in time, what is the risk posture, the risk score, if you will, for a given software product based on the CVEs and the supply chain uh, issues of today, and then make a policy. Don't say throw out that software, because let's say a lot of software you're stuck with. But if you can apply a real-time policy based on that visibility, and that's just one example of how powerful visibility can be. The flip side of that is you got to do something with the information. There's a lot of data flowing at the at the CIO office today, both from a supply chain perspective, from a, all the different blinking lights on their SIM, and this is where automation will set you free. And that's like probably my last piece of the puzzle of how do you operationalize a lot of what we're talking about is embrace automation. Go forth, and this is one thing that a lot of CIOs struggle with. There were, you know, if I you know, break the CEO's email or if I block customers from getting transactions, I'm gonna be in trouble. I guarantee you, it is better to block transactions for a short period of time than to have a massive data breach or a massive ransomware yeah. attack. We've got to get I, a lot of people going through that right now. We yeah. have to be comfortable with automating the security controls, automating the policy updates, and then using that transparency and visibility to be able to apply the to be able to catch when something isn't working and remediate it, as opposed to leaving ourselves open to to severe amounts of risk. So I know I've laid out a whole bunch of things, but if you think about these six or seven tenants, none of them, by the way, none of that I said has anything to do with the the classic zero trust margin. It's how you set yourself up for success to start building zero trust. Well, and and also, Steve, a lot of inf IT infrastructure already has a lot of this stuff. Exactly. It's just leveraging it. So, hey, guys, this has been wonderful today. I think we covered a lot of stuff. Um, we're most definitely going to talk about the maturity model um, coming up soon. Uh, Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Dave, again, second time. Always brilliant to have you on the show. And I look forward to, to talking to you more, uh, Dave, throughout this uh, series. Thank you, Darren. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.